Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Beth Allen, who is sitting in for Suzanne Spradley. Uh, All of us work in the Benefits Compliance Department here at NFP, and we're on this podcast to break down topics that affect employers and uh, employee benefits. So often our topics have revolved around health reform, but today we are going to tackle a different issue, and that is ERISA and FMLA. Uh, Specifically, we're going to look at a lawsuit that lends some important guidance. And Beth, let's start with an overview of the issues in this case. Sure, Chase. Before we talk about the case, let's lay a foundation of two laws, FMLA and ERISA Section 510. As we all know, FMLA allows an employee who has a serious health condition to take up to 12 weeks of leave per year, during which the leave is job protected and the health coverage is continued. We also know that FMLA does not grant an unconditional right to leave, so an employee must comply with the employer's usual and customary notice and procedural requirements. If he or she fails to do so, an employer may be within its rights to terminate. As always, there's a caveat for unusual circumstances that might prevent the employee from following the procedures. So for example, if an employer requires a notice within a certain time frame, but the employee is in a coma, That might be an unusual circumstance. That does sound quite unusual, Beth. Uh, You emphasize the word may there. Uh, The employer may be within its rights to terminate. What do you mean by may? Well, we don't want to give the idea that there is an automatic right to terminate if an employee fails to follow an employer's procedures. There are so many other factors that may come into play, and those type of factors are what we're going to see in the case we discussed today. Okay. So in general, FMLA gives an employee the right to take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave, as you said, if he or she qualifies from a health perspective and follows the employer's procedures. You mentioned this section of ERISA 510. What is that? ERISA section 510 is pretty interesting. It generally prohibits an employer from terminating, disciplining, or discriminating against an employee for exercising any right to which he or she is entitled under an employee benefit plan. For example, we were concerned about the possibility of ERISA 510 cases being filed when some employers chose to drop employer employee hours below 30 to avoid offering health coverage under the ACA employer mandate. But in this case, the law is used in a different way. Okay, so the idea that the employee um, has a right to exercise their rights under ERISA and the employer can't go back on them for that or retaliate or do anything like that. So tell us about the background of this case that we're going to hit today. Sure. The name of the case is Stein versus Atlas Industries, Inc. This case involves a man named Robert Stein, who was an employee of Atlas. Unfortunately, he experienced two misfortunes. First, his son became very ill and barely survived his illness. Second, Stein tore his meniscus. That injury required surgery, so Stein took medical leave to have an operation and recover. Well, about 10 weeks into his recovery, Stein went for a checkup. Stein says that the doctor told him that he would not be released to work until August 10th. However, Stein conceded that he was given a release slip from the doctor's office that actually released him to light duty work as early as July 20th, and then full duty work as of August 10th. Stein gave that release slip to Atlas's workers' compensation office, and so Atlas expected Stein to return to work the following Monday. Unfortunately, Stein thought he was on leave for several more weeks. 
On that Monday, Stein neither showed up for work nor called in, and then again, he didn't call on Tuesday or Wednesday. So on Thursday, Atlas fired him. Wow, that seems pretty harsh. Go straight to the termination of employment there. I agree, especially when you consider the fact that he had worked there for 20 years. Wow. But there was a com- company policy that states that employees who missed three workdays without notifying Atlas were subject to automatic termination. So it was your basic no-call, no no-show policy. And there were no exceptions. As you can imagine, Stein sued, claiming that Atlas violated the FMLA and ERISA Section 510 by firing him. Procedurally, the district court granted Atlas' summary judgment which means the district court entered a judgment in favor of the employer without a full trial. Stein then appealed the case to the Sixth Circuit. Okay, so thanks for that background. Very interesting facts. Um, Nobody wants to be in that situation. But let's unpack the FMLA issue first. I assume, based on your prior comments, that the issue revolves around a notice. Exactly. So the company policy stated that an employee who was absent three consecutive days without permission or without calling in would be automatically discharged. Stein was technically released to come back to work and didn't return and didn't call. As I mentioned before, FMLA doesn't protect an employee who fails to follow an employer's procedures unless there is an unusual circumstance that prevents him from doing so. But Stein argued two things. First, He argued that an employer may not require an employee to return to work once clear for light duty if the employee has not exhausted his FMLA leave. This is true if an employer offers a light duty position, the employee may accept the position but is not required to. However, the court went back to the issue of the notice. Had Stein contacted Atlas to say he was using his remaining two weeks of FMLA leave and was not going to take the light duty work, the company would be prohibited from terminating him. However, because he didn't follow protocol, FMLA would not be a protection. Now, Stein's next argument was that there was an unusual circumstance that prevented him from following the procedures. Namely, he was confused about his return to work date and didn't understand he was released for light duty. But the court rejected that argument because that was not the type of unusual circumstance contemplated by the exception. Instead, they pointed to issues such as an employer's already full voicemail system that would not allow an employee to leave a message. So the FMLA issue was resolved in the employer's favor. I will say that there was some discussion about a retaliation claim under FMLA, but in the interest of time, we won't walk through that issue. Okay, so this is an unfortunate mistake for Stein. You can kind of understand where he's coming from. Um, It's always tough being out on a leave like that and trying to maintain what you're supposed to do even if it's just notifying the employer. So what about the ERISA 510 issue in this instance? Right, so the ERISA 510 issue uh, should be of interest to employers because it essentially involves the termination of an employee whose dependent was a high claimant on their self-insured plan. Remember that I mentioned the other unfortunate aspect of this case is that Stein's son, Jordan, suffered from a debilitating neurological condition. In fact, Jordan had been hospitalized for four months, which was obviously very expensive. So Stein made the ERISA 510 claim, arguing that he was terminated so that the employer could avoid any future large medical bills associated with Jordan's treatment. Keep in mind that in order to prevail on an ERISA 510 claim, Stein had to show that Atlas fired him in order to interfere with his ability to receive future benefits for Jordan under Atlas's employee benefit plan. In addition, To making that very argument, he also claimed retaliation under ERISA, stating that Jordan's past medical costs were causally linked 
to Atlas's decision to fire him. Mm, so that seems like a pretty difficult argument to make. I mean, it, it's a logical one, I guess, for the employee to think that, right? We're just getting rid of me so you don't have to pay these claims. Mm -hmm. But to be able to connect all the dots that the employer actually fired the employee because of that, um, that's a lot more difficult. And yeah, you're right. That is a generally very hard argument to prove. And that's why ERISA Section 510 claims are usually unsuccessful. Hmm. But Atlas definitely didn't make things easy on themselves in this regard. <laughs> so here are the facts that Stein presented. Atlas had spent over $500,000 on medical expenses in the year before Atlas fired Stein. So that's not that unusual. However, Atlas had also publicly expressed its concern about skyrocketing health care costs in a series of employee notices. Hmm. While this is something many employers have likely done and would not necessarily be sufficient evidence to prove the ERISA 510 claim, Atlas didn't stop there. <laughs> More importantly, Stein alleged that an Atlas VP told him twice that he hoped Jordan would be released from the hospital soon because his care was getting expensive for the company. Wow. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Atlas's HR director also purportedly told another employee that astronomical payouts were causing Atlas's health care costs to go up and even showed the employee a document listing nearly $1 million of Jordan's medical expenses. This was enough for the court to conclude that Stein had presented what is referred to as a prima facie case, and they chose to allow Stein's case to continue. In other words, the court found that Stein produced enough evidence as to both parts of the ERISA claim that a jury could find that an ERISA violation occurred. Yeah, so there seemed to be all sorts of problematic behavior in that fact pattern from the employer, right? Yes, absolutely. Anytime an employer is saying things to employees about the cost of their illnesses, HIPAA discrimination based on a health factor could be implicated. Plus, if the HR director did really show another employee Jordan's claims costs, then HIPAA privacy is also an issue. Right. While this case doesn't explicitly get into those issues, it really shows why employers should take a second look at how they openly discuss high claimants and concerns about astronomical plan costs, especially when those costs can be traced to one particular employee or dependent. Right. All sorts of HIPAA seems to scream on, in that situation. Uh, but was that the end of the argument? So no. After Stein made a prima facie case, the burden of proof shifted to Atlas to prove a non-discriminatory reason for firing Stein. At that point, Atlas again argued that the failure to notify was the reason why Stein was fired. However, the court felt that a jury could find that this was merely a pretext. Remember, Stein had worked for them for almost 20 years, had won a perfect attendance award, and even worked overtime when asked. Further, Alice didn't call Stein to check in on him during those three days, but they did call the workers' comp TPA to confirm that Stein had been released. Hmm. Plus, Atlas's policy indicated that an employee would have to complete a return-to-work fitness exam and drug screen in order to return to work, but Atlas did not schedule either of those for Stein. Although FMLA does not require an employer to reach out to an employee under such circumstances, the fact that Atlas didn't do so for a tenured employee could definitely raise a juror's suspicions about Atlas's motives. Plus, Stein was also able to point, other, point to other circumstances where Atlas did reach out to employees to check on them. Right. So it seems like employers done some things for other employees here. You've got an employee with 20 years of tenure, and yet you're just going to let them go after three days of not hearing from them. Uh, 
also while the employee's in a pretty difficult medical situation. Right. Seems pretty crummy. Um, but give us a, a summary of the court's decision in this uh, case. Sure. So basically, Stein presented a prima facie case that he was at least in part terminated due to the medical costs his son was incurring. Next, the court concluded that the employer rebutted the prima facie a case with a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for firing the employee, i.e. his failure to return to work or call in after being released for light duty. However, the court ultimately decided that the employee overcame that rebuttal by showing that a reasonable jury could find that unlawful considerations were a motivating factor in his discharge, citing the fact that the employee was a 20-year employee with a generally good track record with the employer. The court further noted that the employer's failure to contact the employee when he did not return to work could raise a jury's suspicions about the employer's motives, especially given evidence of selective enforcement of the absenteeism policy. So the appellate court found that the district court erred in granting, in granting summary judgment and said that Stein had a right to bring this issue before a, jur a jury. So basically, the, the, court, the case itself has not been fully resolved, right? The jury has not weighed in on whether those facts are enough to overcome... Um, the employer's arguments here, but the court is allowing the, the case to proceed. Um, it's not over. So, so many instructive issues here for employers. FMLA cases are always interesting to read the facts, seem to be um, all sorts of uh, interesting things going on. Uh, but we don't see ERISA 510 cases very often. Can you speak to that? Sure, that, that's really true. And again, as I said earlier, it's sometimes hard to prove that the person was actually uh, discriminated against or retaliated against or terminated um, because the employer wanted to basically limit their rights under ERISA. But it's important for employers to take away from this that they should separate employment decisions from employee benefit plan considerations. In fact, this separation would likely be mandatory for employers receiving protected health information under HIPAA's privacy rules like this self-funded um, insurer did. Finally, this case also underscores the need to consult with legal counsel before firing any employee who's experienced an illness or whose dependents have amassed claims costs. Counsel would definitely be able to address some of the red flags that could come up, and having that discussion take place before litigation possibly could protect the, the employer from making a bad decision and finding themselves in court. Right. Very good breakdown of the issues and the uh, takeaways there for employers, Beth. Thank you for going through that case with us. Um, and as we like to say on this uh, podcast, that's a wrap. Mm -hmm.